Okay, if you have your Bibles at Nahum, we're going to read chapter 1 today and we'll go through chapter 1, the book of Nahum. This will be a three-part series, chapter 1, chapter 2, and then chapter 3. So Nahum chapter 1. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness." Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away, though I have afflicted you. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Father, we come to you once more today. And we just ask you to give us understanding of your word, Lord. Of this prophet thousands of years ago, Lord, that prophesied judgment to Nineveh. Destruction to Nineveh, Lord. I pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help me, Lord, to proclaim your word clearly. And to give understanding to your people, Lord. May we make application of your word. Today, make proper application of your word, and may Jesus Christ be glorified, Father, in this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the, on the back of your bulletin, there, there is the outline. Uh, I made one mistake when I prepared it. On, on point number one, I had verses one through eight. It's actually going to be verses two through eight, uh, because verse one is more of an introduction to the, to the sermon, to the book. And so let's look at verse 1 and talk about it just for a minute by way of introduction. It says, The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So this word oracle in the NAS, it means, uh, it could mean prophecy, burden. I think the King James and the New King James says burden because it was a heavy burden, what he was doing. Uh, or just simple, the, the word message or proclamation. That's what this word means. And it's uh, the Oracle of Nineveh. The proclamation of the judgment of Nineveh is what this is. It's a, it's a divine revelation which carries divine authority with it. As we know, it comes with the prophets of God. 
the prophet Nahum. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you know much about Nahum? I hope you don't say, I know a lot about Nahum. (laughs) Because not a lot is known about Nahum. (laughs) What the name does mean is comforter. And you thought, man, what if you've read this prophecy? (laughs) It doesn't sound like much comfort. But to the people of God, it would have been. To the nation of Judah, it would have been comforting. uh, Because it's about the fall, the message of the fall of Nineveh. One of their one of their enemies. I mean, and, and really, as we'll as we'll talk about more in the introduction, a very very violent, very cruel people. So in that sense, it's a comfort to God's people. Nineveh had been an enemy of Judah and Israel. In 722 BC, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, destroying Samaria, Samaria, the capital. And in 701 BC, they almost conquered Jerusalem, the capital. Of Judah. And so the Lord finally destroys Nineveh, which Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. This, this prophecy comes to complete fulfillment in 612 BC. We know that. So this is probably the, the, the completion of this judgment that Nahum prophesies is gonna is gonna be complete roughly about 150 years after Jonah, which is the book we just went through. Um, so that gives you a little bit of a time period at the time where God granted repentance to Nineveh. And so, so multiple generations have passed now since that time. And the Lord's patience has run out with Nineveh. Their, their sin has, has come to a completion. Nineveh was known, again, for its violence towards their enemies. We talked about this some when we went through the book of Jonah. But just as a way of reminder, guys, they would amputate hands and feet of their enemies. They would gouge out eyes. This is all, of course, while they're still alive. And skin or fillet their victims while still alive. Very barbaric. The two most prominent cities of, of this of this, of this day of ancient history, Babylon and Nineveh, both founded by Nimrod. I, I believe you can see that in Genesis 10. I, I, I think so. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says this about these two, about these two cities. Really, this empi- these empires. Babylon emerged as the archetypal secular city, which, which you can see in the book of Revelation. It's the picture of the, the secular city. The, the, the world system that opposes God. Uh, so that's what, that's what Babylon stands for. Uh, hold on, I lost my place there. Yeah, it emerged as the archetypal secular city. city. Nineveh became the embodiment of human violence and conquest. And so he says this, Babylon stands for the warfare of man against God. And, I, and again... You can see that in the book of Revelation that, that it uses this, this type, this Babylon type to, to, to represent the, the, the fallen world that's in opposition to God. So Babylon stands for the warfare of man against God. Nineveh stands for the warfare of man against his fellow human beings and just the violence that they practice. Nahum most likely prophesied in the days of King Manasseh of Judah, 
He reigned from 686 to 642. These dates are not when Nahum actually wrote this. It's not set in stone. Nobody knows for sure. But somewhere in the middle of that century with the actual fulfillment coming in 612 B.C. And one reason we know that it's in that time period because in chapter 3, verse 8, if you look at chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. In the NAS, it says, Are you better than no Noamon? Noamon, it may say Thebes in a different version. And this was a the city in, um, in Egypt, I believe, that was conquered by Assyria. So that had, that had already happened uh, and that happened in 663 B.C. So it was somewhere after 663 when Nahum wrote this. And it was fulfilled in 612. And again, guesses were all over the place. But it's sometime within that 50 year period when he actually wrote this. It says, Nahum the Elkishite. Again, not much is known about this. There's all kinds of opinions. It just is indicating that he probably came from a place called Elkish. But there's really there's not a lot of substantial evidence of what is exactly true and what's not, so there's no reason to speculate. So there's 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 no for sure details of anything further about that name Elkish or Elkishite. And there's really, like I said a while ago, guys, there's really nothing else known about Nahum. So uh, if somebody tells you they know a lot about Nahum, I don't know where they're getting their information. Uh, but what's important is his message. That's what's important. And that's primarily what's important with all the prophets. But that's what we know about Nahum primarily is what's in this, this book. And it's, this is the only prophecy, guys. In, in verse 1 it says, the book of the vision of Nahum. This is the only prophecy that's called a book. And this, and this book was probably sent by Nahum to Nineveh. They don't know by who, but... Uh, that's a little bit what, what we know about this book by way of introduction. And so, the title of the message is A Wrathful and Patient Lord. A Wrathful and Patient Lord. Because that's what we see in the text today. Um, the theme on, on your uh, outline, the theme is this. If you could sum up this chapter. The Lord is an avenging, wrathful, jealous God who is also patient and forgiving to those who seek refuge in Him. So really we see a balance of God's attributes today in this text. And so Nahum, at the beginning of this oracle, really these first eight verses especially, because again, he's writing this to be sent to Nineveh. This would have been read obviously to those in Judah and to those in Nineveh. He wants to give everyone a description of the Lord, which is why... Uh, that's going to be point number one. He wants to give all those who are here this a description of this God. And he wants, he, he wants all to hear it and all to understand, guys. And everybody needs, needs to know this. I would say in our day as well. All need to know this. So that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at really for the, uh, a large portion of the, of the message today is a description of the Lord. It really sets the foundation for the rest of the prophecy. He's going he's to tell us, He's going to tell those in Nineveh who will hear, and His people Judah, who the Lord is that's coming in judgment. And so point number one today is a description of the Lord. 
a description of the Lord. This is going to be in verses 2 through 8 primarily. That's what we're going to look at. First of all, we see in verse 2 that God is that the Lord is jealous. In verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. I'm going to say this right up front in case I forget. But all of these, all of these, um, these attributes that we're looking at, as far as God's, He's a jealous God, He's an avenging God, a wrathful God. All people that are not in Christ, okay, are His enemies. Okay? I think you and I understand this because it says right there in verse 2 that He reserves wrath for His enemies. Now obviously the context of this letter, He is talking about the Assyrians. But this is speaking about everybody who is not in Christ, the Bible says, are enemies of God and children of wrath in Ephesians 2. So we need to understand that. Somebody who would listen to this needs to understand that. Now this word jealous, the Lord, or or, or, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. This is not like when we usually use the word jealousy or, or he or she is jealous. Usually when we're using that word, it, it, is, it is me, it, this jealousy is, is being used in a sinful way, right? Being jealous or, or envious of someone who has something that we don't have. That's usually the way we use the word. And that's usually the, that's usually the way that word is... is um, that's what it means in our day. You know, we're, we're jealous in a sinful sense. I'm jealous because Jamie is about to retire. Hopefully. But uh, you see, that is that is sinful jealousy. You know, it's 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 real similar to covet covetousness. It's envy. Well, beloved, God is jealous for His own glory, that His honor be maintained. Listen to Exodus thirty four fourteen. You can jot that verse down. But Exodus thirty four fourteen, you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, with a capital J, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Maybe this will help you understand, guys. The difference in in how this word is used. A man has a right, or a husband has a right to be jealous if a man is flirting with his wife. You have a right to be jealous if a man is flirting with your wife. Why? Because only he, as her husband, has a right to flirt with his wife because God has given him his wife. It's a healthy thing to be to have a jealousy for a man flirting with your wife. This is not sinful. And God is jealous for His own glory, for His own worship, because He alone is to be worshipped. He is jealous for something that is rightfully His. Amen? God's glory is rightfully His. Just like my wife is rightfully mine. Thus saith the Lord, right? One man, one woman in marriage. So there is a difference between being jealous of something that doesn't belong to you and being jealous that something that does belong to you. And all glory and all worship belongs 
to God Almighty, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the difference in this jealousy. This is rightfully His. He is the one true God and He will share His glory with no other. And so the Ninevites, among other things, they were idolaters. And they also led the people of God into idolatry. Therefore, God is a jealous God. Secondly, we see He is an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. Or or, or the line before that, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And the Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He takes vengeance on His adversaries. This is the action, guys. This is the action that emerges from His jealousy. He's jealous and then He takes vengeance. This vengeance is the measuring out of a just recompense, right? Everything God does is just. So whatever He avenges, He does so justly. A just recompense. And it's, and it's such a challenge to, to help people understand this. That there is no injustice with God, right? That if you die in your sins, you're going to get a just recompense. God will avenge you. Or He will avenge... I said that wrongly. He will take vengeance on you for your sins against Him. Listen to Revelation 22, verse 12. This is out of the ESV. Behold, I am coming soon, Christ speaking, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And what does the Lord say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine. He is an avenging God. Thirdly, we see He is a wrathful God. Still in verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. And who again is His enemies? All of those outside of Christ are God's enemies. The Bible makes it crystal clear. When God is not worshipped as the one and only God, His anger is provoked. Why? Because He's the jealous God and He alone deserves worship. His anger is provoked at injustice and wickedness. You think about the Lord, guys. He is perfect in all of His attributes, is He not? Every attribute you study of God's Word, He's perfect. Like Shiloh said last week, He's not 50% merciful and 50% just. He's 100% perfect in all of these attributes. He is perfect and He is altogether beautiful. And He is the Creator of all people. He is our Creator, first of all. He sustains our life, does He not? Think about how He sustains our life. He allows our heart to pump, the, to pump the blood through our body necessary to live. He allows our lungs to breathe in the air that He supplies. And on and on and on, He sustains our life. And sinful humanity is ungrateful. It's un, they're ungrateful. And His wrath is being stored up that's going to be poured out on that day. Listen to Psalm 51.4. David says when he was confessing his sin of adultery against Bathsheba, 
of, of having her husband put to death against you, talking to the Lord, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. When sinners live in rebellion towards God, when sinners indulge in all kinds of acts of immorality, thinking that nobody sees, they are sinning against God Almighty. All sin is directed to God Almighty. If you lie to your neighbor, if you steal from your neighbor, you are sinning against God Almighty. If you are viewing pornography and indulging in these things, you are sinning against God Almighty. Against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And sinners are storing up wrath, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. Those outside of Christ. He says, because of your impenitent heart, your unwillingness to repent, you are storing up wrath for yourself that is going to be revealed on the day of wrath. It's going to be revealed on that day. He is a God of wrath. The Lord is a master of wrath. This just means He displays. He's not out of control with His wrath like men can be. Don't think of God's wrath like somebody who has an anger problem and a temper problem and loses his temper. That's not God. He displays a calculated control in His giving of vengeance. He is in control. And, and, and a good example of that, guys, is the most wicked act ever performed on earth, which was the cross. Right? The most evil, wicked act ever performed. Gets, there's only been one good man, one perfect man, and they took his life. We know it was ordained by God, but it was a wicked, evil act. And do you remember Christ on the cross? He said, I could call my legions of angels. Right? He could have had them all slaughtered. All of them. The whole humanity. But instead, what did God do? Because God is in control of His wrath. What did He do instead? He poured out His wrath on Christ. He spared them. And as we're going to see in a moment, He showed how patient He is. No, He poured out His wrath that these men deserved who were, who were blaspheming Christ. And He poured the wrath out upon His Son. That is, that is calculated, controlled giving of vengeance. God is not out of control with His wrath. But He is wrathful. He is angry with the wicked every day. 24 hours a day. Thirdly, we see that He is powerful. That He is powerful. Starting in verse 3, we're going to go down a few verses and just see... Just talk about examples of His power. In verse 3, second part of verse 3, in whirlwind and storm is His way and clouds are the dust of His feet. There's so much language in the Bible, guys, about He's coming in judgment with the clouds, you know? So sometimes it's hard to tell what's, what's really metaphorical and what's literal as far as these. But we see He's always coming in judgment in the clouds. But just think of the clouds. It says that they are the dust of his feet. Think of the think of the massive cumulus cloud. You know, if you've ever been in an airplane, you see them from above. They're just they're massive, and they're and they're pictured as the dust of his feet. And often his judgment 
comes is described as coming like a whirlwind. These are just images, right? Of, 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 of strong winds. And, and He will send storms as well. We know that. In, in, in Jeremiah 4.13, for example, it says that the Lord judged... Now this is when He was judging Judah for their idolatry. The Lord judged Judah for their idolatry by sending the Babylonians. And it says they came like a whirlwind. Like a storm. But we see the power of God. And we know the power of God that He, he does have power over nature itself. He demonstrated His power. What was one of the great demonstrations of His power in Exodus? The Red Sea, right? I mean, His name was famous for delivering the Israelites, parting the Red Sea. Parting the Red Sea. He says He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Nobody knows for sure what exactly that he's, that he's talking about here. But, but in other words, perhaps he'll, he'll drive a, maybe the Tigris River that was near Nineveh. Maybe that's part of this language. That would allow the Babylonians and the Medes easier access into Nineveh. But we see God's power over nature. He's done it before and He'll do it again. The point is that He is great in power. Even over the seas and even over the rivers and as we'll see, the, the mountains and all of these great things of His creation. God is powerful over all of them. And He uses, he uses these very things in judgment as well. Very nature itself. In verse 4, it says, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. These were the most fertile lands of Israel's northern territories. And this judgment, this withering that it talks about was brought by the Assyrians themselves. And so if God judged Israel so severely, then Assyria, Nineveh, had better be ready for what's coming. The wrath of the Lord. This is this again. This was going to be read to the king in Nineveh, and to the Ninevites, and to Judah, and this God of wrath that he he judged his own people, and he's coming for you because of your idolatry, because of your wickedness. Verse five. Look at verse five. Mountains quake because of him. We all understand the the imagery here, right? The the the. The enormous size of mountains. Mountains quake because of Him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants with it. Who is foolish enough, in other words, to trifle with our avenging thrice holy God? That's the point. He can and has and will make an end of even the greatest mountains. And this is really a foreshadowing of the end. 2 Peter 3, verses 10-13. That's really what these, this kind of language in the Old Testament, it's even, it, 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 it has multiple fulfillments, some of these prophecies. Listen to, look at, listen to 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away 
with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now there's different interpretations of that, different, but that sounds like some destruction to me. Before God recreates everything. He is coming in power. He is a powerful God. Who can stand, in verse 6, who can stand before His indignation? That's the question, right? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. Who can stand before this God? Who can stand before His anger? Again, He is angry with the wicked every day. He's angry with sinners every day. His wrath is going to be poured out like fire. Again, what, what is exactly intended here? Is it He can, he can destroy with his, with his Son, the massive Son that He has, right? The Son is massive, guys. The earth fits into a Son a million times. And it's like a pebble to God. And yet He can bring... What, what can He bring to the Son? He can bring drought. He can bring famine. Or He can bring fire directly from heaven like He did at Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is, is that fire consumes. Fire consumes. No nation. The, the question, who can stand? No nation can stand. Eventually, Babylon comes down. Assyria will come down. All nations will come down. No nation or individual will stand before His indignation unless, unless, look at verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Unless you take refuge in Him, you will not stand. Which leads us right into our, our uh, fifth thing we see under His description that God is patient. Right? The title of the message, the Lord is wrathful, but He is also patient. A wrathful and patient Lord. <clears throat> that just means slow to anger. Look at verse 3. Back up at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger and great in power. really just means He's, he's slow to pour out His anger fully and finally. You think about how long-suffering He is, guys. Think about what we read in Noah, in Genesis, about Noah, and Peter referenced it. He preached Noah. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher, that Noah was a preacher, and he preached for 120 years about the coming of the flood. He was very long-suffering. Who else was he long-suffering towards? Nineveh. We just, we just finished Jonah a few weeks ago. He was long-suffering. He spared them. He granted repentance. And He is patient towards sinners in general. Is He not? Are you glad the Lord's patient? Man, I'm very thankful the Lord's patient. My life flashed before my eyes 
two or three or four times before God saved me by His grace. It was just very, very near death. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we know that's we know that's one reason Christ hasn't returned because He's patient, waiting on people to repent. And I would say the same thing. He's patient, right? He could take our life anytime, and He allows us to live. He allows His enemies to live in His world. You know, if you're an enemy of God, you are living in enemy territory. You're breathing the enemy's air that He's given you eating the food that He gives you. God is very patient. God is very patient. And so we know how He feels. I was thinking about this, about His patience. We know how He feels in particular about a certain um, lifestyle that's being celebrated in our day in the month of June, right? We call it Pride Month. Or we don't, but the world calls it Pride Month. So, for example, we know how he feels about this particular lifestyle because he showed us how he feels in Genesis 19, I believe it is, Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know how he feels about that particular lifestyle. But he feels this way towards all those who are outside of Christ because of his holiness. It's not just a particular lifestyle. It's all of those who are outside of Christ. Listen to, listen to Psalms. To Psalm 5 5, just to be reminded of how he feels, guys, before I say something, or before I say what I was going to say next. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So we know how he feels about these things. So why does he not pour out fire from heaven like we know that he can and just like he has done before and that he could justly do? Why does he do these things? Because he's patient. That's why. If he did those things, guys, he would be just. He would do that which is right. And, and all the creation would applaud Him. The angels in heaven would applaud Him. But guys, He's patient. He's patient. But His patience will run out. His patience will run out. I just thought of this off the top of my head, so I hope I get it right. But it's the uh, illustration that Paul Washer has given. He's got both of his hands up. God has got both of his hands up. And one of them, he's holding back his wrath. And the other one, he is motioning sinners to come to him. And at a given point in time, at a time of history, he's going to drop both hands. And the wrath of God is going to flood. It's going to pour on sinners like a flood. Just like it did in Noah's day. Except it will be the full final wrath of God. So lastly, under point number one, we see that God, the Lord, is good. He is good. He is good. He is slow to anger. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. We talked about this last week. The Lord is good. A stronghold 
in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. He is good. He is slow to anger. You know who God is not like? He is not like the false gods. Do you remember reading about the false gods and maybe uh, in, um, in your... Uh, the Greek gods in your maybe high school literature? Remember they were always wrathful, were they not? But they were never good. They were never tender. They were never personal. They were never forgiving. The sinner always has to do something to appease the false gods. But with God, we know that we can appease Him. Only His Son's perfect righteousness and death upon the cross and bearing His wrath could appease God. So He's good. He's not like the false gods. Psalm 119.68, it says, You are good and do good. God is a good God. That's what makes this so unbelievable is that we're reading about these things, how God is wrathful and He's vengeful, but He's good. He's a good God. Shadow reminded us of that last week. Psalm 100, verse 4 and 5. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Why? For the Lord is good. Think about the goodness of God, guys. Let's think about the goodness of God for a moment. First of all, He is our Creator, is He not? He, he is the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb. We praise Him, right? We praise Him because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every baby is fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together. Made in the image of God. That's what makes taking a human life in the womb or out of the womb such a wicked act of murder. We are made in the image of God. Made by Him. Special to Him. So He's our Creator. He's good. He created us. He sustains our life. I mentioned that a few moments ago. It's all the ways He sustains our life, right? Keeps our blood pumping. I mean, thank, thank the Lord for doctors like Josh that God uses, but God is the one that allows our heart to keep pumping that blood, whatever our heart does. Breathing that air, right? God's the one that does it. God's the one that does it. And, and we've been reminded in our, in our family that a, you know my friend in high school died a couple weeks ago. Her grandmother died a week ago. Her uncle just found out he died and her aunt's about to. That, that death is a reality. And, and God's the one who sustains our life. And so we should remember that this life is a gift. He sustains it. He gives us tasty food, right, for our taste buds. We've talked about that before. He could make all the food taste like dirt. Maybe it would sustain our life, but it wouldn't be very enjoyable. But He gives us taste buds we can taste food with. He gives us beautiful creation for our eyes to see, right? The oceans and the, and the beaches and the mountains and the, and the flowers and all the animals and the, and the neat little... just I mean, my wife, she can marvel at a little insect. Just how neat it is. But God gives us these things to enjoy. His creation. The flowers for our, for our um, noses to smell. Uh, obviously, families. He's the one that gives us these things. Friends. He gives us talents and gifts to earn wealth, right? He gives us all these things. But where did He express His goodness? Most of all, again, in the cross. Did He not? In the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to make sense of God's holiness 
the, the fact that God can be holy, if we understand what holiness is, if we understand what justice is, there's no way to make sense of these things. His wrath, and, and, and at the same time that He's forgiven and merciful. You can't make sense of this outside of the cross. But because of the cross, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And he, and he talks about this in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And thank goodness for the cross that we can receive mercy from God and yet our guilt, our sin that deserves punishment, it was punished. But Christ bore the punishment. So that's where we understand the holiness of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God all met at the cross. And that's why we praise Him, right? For all eternity, we praise Him because we know our sin. If you have been regenerated, born again, you have been given eyes to see, you understand your sin debt that you owed to God, and so you know what Jesus Christ has saved you from, what He endured on the cross. So praise be to God. In verse 7b, it says, He knows those who take refuge in Him. John Calvin says about this knowing, this, he says, this to know is no other thing than not to neglect them. Hence, God is said to know them who hope in Him because He always watches over them. This is what it means when God knows us, guys. It's an intimate it's intimate language. He's always watching over you. And He takes care of their safety. He says, in short, this knowledge is nothing else but the care of God or His providence in preserving the faithful. He cares for us. He preserves us to the very end. And as Jesus said, He will not lose one of His sheep. And that's because God knows us. Those who take refuge in Him through faith in Christ, He knows those. And So what is all this language in the first part of this book so far? It's Psalm 2 language. If you guys remember, Psalm 2, verse 12, what did the psalmist say? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. But then He says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That could sum up these first eight verses. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And then one last word about His goodness is that God is good. And like Paul Washer always says, the biggest problem for sinners is that God is good because they're not. Right? And so if they die in that place, right? None is good. None is righteous. So if they die, if they die outside of Christ, they will face the holy God who is good. In their sin. And so this, in verse 8, finish verse 8 here, it says, but with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Now He's speaking about Nineveh here. This overflowing flood probably is just symbolic of a flood of invaders. That kind of language is used. When God judges a nation... It, it, this language is used that he brings a flood. Whatever army's coming, this is probably meant by a flood of the Babylonians. 
and the Medes. But, according to secular historical accounts, during the final siege, during the final siege, heavy floods did come as well, which weakened the city walls and enabled the enemies easier access. So that is historical. But the point is, he's going to make, he is going to make, it says he will make a complete end of its sight. He's going, to come make, he's going to make a complete end of Assyria without remedy. And He will do that to all of His enemies. To all of His enemies. In verse 8 it says He will pursue His enemies into darkness. That word darkness just signifying distress, dread, and death. And ultimately, hell. That's where all of God's enemies will ultimately end up. So I know that was long. Point number one, we're 45 minutes into it. Second two will go quicker, okay? Second two will go quicker. That really sets up the whole book. We, we understand who God is. This God that's coming in judgment. And so from here on out, it's just going to be, He's going to be describing this judgment in more detail. Especially in chapters 2 and 3. But secondly, we see the certain destruction of Nineveh. Certain destruction of Nineveh verses 9 through the first part of verse 12. We're going to look at two aspects of it. First of all, that it is complete. We just, we just read that, but he talks more about it. It is a complete judgment. In verse 9, Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. A complete end of it. I'm going to turn back to Psalm 2 real quick just for a moment. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to mark it down, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and verse 4. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and verse 4. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the people devise in a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. And remember how the Lord reacts in verse 4? He who sits in the heavens laughs. You know, you hear that talk. Man, sinners are going to shake their fist at God. Even nations, right? They're going to shake their fist at God. They're going, to, they're going to bring Christianity down. And God just sits up there and laughs. He knows their day's coming. So this judgment's going to be complete. This destruction's going to be complete. In verse 9, which we just read, He will make a complete end of it. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Complete and utter destruction is what this means. Distress will not rise up twice. In other words, Nineveh, there's no getting up from this. You're going to be buried never to be known again. I think of it back when I was a teenager and Mike Tyson was coming up in his prime. When that dude hit you with a left hook, there was no getting up. When he was in his prime, some guys you could get up from when he landed, it was over. Isn't that right, Jamie? Back in the day? So there's not, there's not going to be a there's not going to be a second chance for Assyria. God's patience has run out. Look, look at verse ten. Like tangled thorns. Again, we're looking at this complete destruction. Like tangled thorns, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. This tang- picture picture thorns being tangled together. You know, you can't even separate them. The, the Lord is saying, "I'm just going to." I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consume you all together like a, like a big wad of tangled thorns. Put them in the fire together. 
It says they are consumed. Nothing is consumed quicker than is dry stubble. That's what the judgment, that's the picture He's given us. Completely withered. Nineveh will be as helpless as drunkards stumbling around in a fight. Think of a drunkard who's so drunk he can't even walk trying to fight. Many, many years ago, I've been on that end of it. I've been so intoxicated that you couldn't fight and trying to pick a fight. It doesn't turn out well, I can tell you. That's a, isn't that great about the Old Testament? I don't have to think of illustrations. It's right there. It's like a, like a drunkard stumbling into a fight. In other words, Nineveh is so drunk with pleasure and pride, they're not going to know what hit them. They're completely unaware of what's coming. Completely unaware of what's coming. In Zephaniah, you can read, just jot this down, Zephaniah 2.15. Again, Nineveh, who was once humbled, right? 150 years earlier, 100 years earlier. They were once humbled and repentant through Jonah's preaching. God had mercy on them. Later, at this time, Zephaniah writes, they thought they were God. They were so prideful. Listen to this language, guys. This is not Yahweh talking. This is Nineveh talking. And Zephaniah 2.15, I am and there is no other besides me. That was their pride. What did it say about God? He is a jealous God. What did Jesus say? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Assyria will be humbled. This wicked city with its wicked king, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. This is who is probably the king because this king reigned from 669 to 627. So at the time this was written, not at the time that it was fulfilled, his name was Asherbanapal. Okay? My wife could probably pronounce it. But this was probably the king. It's really irrelevant who it was, but the, the, this wicked city in verse 11. Look at verse 11. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So this wicked city with its wicked king influenced that wicked counselor is, is, is meant something demonic, a demonic spirit. So this wicked city, this is the point, this wicked city with its wicked king influenced by the devil himself will be completely destroyed. And let's remember the big picture of Scripture real briefly, guys. The big picture, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent, remember? The seed of the serpent. So what do we see here? The seed of the serpent stands behind Nineveh. God is accomplishing His redemptive purposes. This judgment preserves the redemption of His people through which Messiah will come. Just another incidence in the story of redemption where the seed of the serpent is put down. Secondly, we see that it's easy. This destruction is easy. Meaning, meaning that it's easy by the Lord. Right? It doesn't take much effort on God's part. Look at verse 12. Verse, first part of verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and passed away. It's easy. He destroys Nineveh while they're at full strength. In other words, they were at full strength. You know, they're their military power, 
He hits them when they're, when, they're, when they're strong, not when they're weak. What a tragedy it is when those who are healthy, when those who are wealthy, when those who are powerful fall into the hands of the living God. What a tragedy. You guys remember Herod. That the Herod that was in Acts. Acts chapter 12, do you remember? In Acts, in Acts 12, you can jot these verses down. Acts 12, 22 and 23. You remember while addressing the people, do you remember what the people kept crying out? The voice of a God and not of a man. And what happened next? Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory. Right? God is a jealous God. And it says he was eaten by worms and died. And you know what's implied there? I'm not adding to Scripture. It doesn't say it, but what's even worse is if you, if you just carried on because he was an ungodly man, he was eaten by worms and died and went to hell. God is a jealous God. And Herod was not willing to acknowledge that. That God was the one that was worthy of worship, not Him. And then thirdly, and lastly, the Lord's sovereign judgment and deliverance. Verses 12b through 15. Now in chapter 1, starting in verse 9, all the way down to about chapter 2, verse 2, we, what you see here is prophecies of destruction of Nineveh. They alternate with prophecies of deliverance of Judah. Okay? So you're going to see, it's like... At one point he's talking to Judah, and another point he's talking to Nineveh, and I'll point out a few of these right here. So we see the Lord's sovereign judgment and deliverance. First of all, we see the judgment of Assyria, God's sovereignty. Verse 14, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for your contemptible. This is a command from Yahweh concerning the king and really the whole kingdom. And he's saying there will be no descendants for the king. There will be no descendants for the king. Your dynasty, your supposed all-powerful, never-ending dynasty, who you claim is as powerful as me, is coming to an end. It's coming to an end. The false gods and the idols of the temple will be destroyed as well. There will be nobody left to bury the king. He is contemptible, it says. That means vile. This man that was so powerful and was so cruel and oppressive, he's contemptible. There's not even going to be anybody left to bury him. He's worthless. He's insignificant. What does this remind us of, guys? Wicked rulers come and go. Wicked people come and go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The people of Nineveh were lost from history, guys. Even the city was lost completely until being discovered and excavated by archaeologists beginning in the 1840s. Which again, guys, one more, this is just one of thousands of archaeological evidences that point to the Scripture being God-breathed. Archaeology always aligns with Scripture. 
Never, it's never been the opposite. There's thousands of these where people think, I think it was maybe the Hittites. Oh, yeah, the Bible talks about the Hittites. There's no such thing. Just give it time. I forget when. Several years ago, they were discovered through archaeology. It always, it, always, it always affirms what the Bible says. And then lastly, guys, we see the Lord's sovereign deliverance of Judah. Sovereign deliverance of Judah. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and passed away. Though I have afflicted you. He's talking to Judah. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. You see God's sovereignty, guys? Who are they, who are they afflicted by in, in, as far as in this world? They were afflicted by the Assyrians. But God takes responsibility for it. Though I have afflicted you, I will do no longer. In other words, God is the one who did it because He is sovereign. He raises up wicked nations to judge people and then He'll raise up another wicked nation for judging this wicked nation for being so wicked to His people. We see the sovereign hand of God. Powerful Nineveh, verse 13. So now I will break His yoke. Speaking of Assyria, Nineveh, I will break His yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. Powerful Nineveh will be brought down and Yahweh will deliver His people. That's what we see here. And in verse 15, the first half of verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news. Does that not sound familiar? Does that sound like Shiloh, right? Paul in Romans 10? And he quotes it out of, I think, Isaiah. And this is similar. It's not exactly like Isaiah says it. I think it's Isaiah. So if I'm wrong, forgive me. But I know Paul quotes that. Good, right? The, the good news, the, the, uh, the, how beautiful are the feet who bring the good news of the gospel. So he says here, Behold on the mountains the feet of Him who brings the good news, who announces peace. What good news this would have been to Judah, right? Nineveh is destroyed. Nineveh is going to be destroyed. 612 B.C., Nineveh was destroyed. And it brought peace to the nation of Judah. Sin and death are destroyed, right? Sin and death and hell are destroyed by the blood of the cross and through His resurrection. So there's peace with God for those who repent and believe the Gospel. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that good news of peace. And then guys, lastly in closing, we see the second part of verse 15. It says, Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Right? The enemy's destroyed. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. Now we need to remember, he's talking about Assyria specifically. Because later they fall into bondage to the Babylonians. But this enemy here has been, will have been destroyed in 612 B.C. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So he says, celebrate, right? Now that your enemy is completely destroyed. In other words, what do you do now? Serve the Lord. Amen? Serve the Lord. Testify of His deliverance. It's the same for you and I, guys. It's the same for you and I, right? 
God defeated permanently our greatest enemy. Much greater than a nation. Death itself. Right? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? It was destroyed through the cross of Jesus Christ through His resurrection. The same power of God that destroyed Nineveh destroyed death. Raised His Son from the dead. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. It's been defeated. So beloved, God didn't save you and I, right? He didn't save you and I so that we could live a life just focused on ourselves, right? No, we are to we are to live our life to the glory of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 10:31, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. God has saved you, he has had mercy upon you. Beloved, so do whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whatever God has you doing for a living every day, you go out whether you're an electrician, do it for the glory of God. School teacher, do it for the glory of God. Uh, a homemaker, home cleaner, I could go on and on, do it for the glory of God. Carl, what exactly do you do at work? I know where you work. Do it for the glory of God. I'm just saying I don't know exactly what you're doing all day. Do it for the glory of God. Jamie? <laughs> Almost. Well, when you're retired, do it for the glory of God. But Nabisco, do it for the glory of God. Be a doctor for the glory of God. Be a nurse for the glory of God. Be a truck driver for the glory of God. A pastor for the glory of God. And on and on and on. Do it for the glory of God, right? And testifying along the way of His goodness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, that You are not only wrathful, that You are not only jealous, that You are not only vengeful, Lord, but You are good. You are patient. And You are merciful. And we thank You for that, Lord. I, I just pray blessings over, over this uh, flock, Lord. I pray that You would bless everyone here with Your presence, Lord. I pray that You would bless them, God, with just an eagerness Father, to glorify You with the talents and gifts that You have given each one of us. Lord, we praise You and love You. In Christ's name, Amen.